you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which you are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you will engage with us today as we engage with your word. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Great to see everybody today. We are continuing our series that we started last week as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, uh, looking at the newborn church, the church of 2,000 years ago. We're investigating one of the, uh, the great descriptions of that church to kind of find what was their secret, what was it about them that made them so vibrant and alive as we think about what it means for us to be a community here in this great city uh, today And so Acts chapter 2 is, is uh, giving us our framework for this series over the next uh, four weeks. And so in Acts chapter 2, we read this about the newborn church. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and, had every, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so this is the original description of the community that was the followers of Jesus. And of note here, there are four practices that stand out in this description. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so it's this structure that we want to use over these next four weeks to kind of delve in and see what, what, what is meant behind each of these practices that we're told they were devoted to. By the way, that, that word devoted is kind of a cool word. The idea is that they were laser-focused on these things. They were passionate about things. They were giving their full time to these elements. They persisted in, in holding on to, to understand these four elements. And so the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayer. So today we are looking at that first idea, the, the idea of the apostles' teaching, that first practice that, that was clearly a part of the newborn church and, and what made it thrive next week. And that is going to talk to us about the fellowship. And then we've got a couple weeks to come wrestling with each of these uh, elements. So, again, devoted to. They were laser-focused on these four elements, and today we're investigating the apostles' uh, teaching. So, first question, like, who are the apostles? That's important for us to understand if we're going to get our minds around what's going on here 
And uh, the Bible is clear that the apostles were those who had seen and engaged with the risen Jesus and had been commissioned to communicate the good news about who he was. So these are the uh, apostles. And so the implication here is that the early church was devoted, they were, they were to persist in these four elements, uh, and that the, it, the apostles' teaching was the first one, and the apostles were uh, those who had met and engaged with Jesus and were commissioned to teach ab- about him. So they were to, to, to engage with the teaching of these apostles. Now, um, it, it must have been quite an experience because, you know, you're coming here today and we're sharing and worship together and you know I'm going to share with you for a few minutes but can you imagine if instead of me you had one of the original apostles to, to preach to you wouldn't that be amazing I think that I would rather listen to them than me I don't know about you be careful please don't hurt my feelings um, no we all would rather listen to an apostle somebody I mean when you have somebody who has a first-hand story about engaging with something I mean that's the person that you want to you want to hear from and so the idea that they were able to come together and engage with people who had actually met with talked with and were commissioned by Jesus to talk about what he had come to do that would be incredible so that what an, uh, uh, an amazing experience uh, that would be so it's a little challenging for us so you have to, to you know today you have to listen to, to me or, or we engage with the teaching of the apostles through the, the Bible. So the Bible has recorded, the New Testament in particular, has the record of the teaching of the apostles because we do not have access to them. We cannot in, invite Paul or a Peter to come and share with us today. So we engage to the apostles' teaching, this element of the church that was so important 2,000 years ago today because we still feel like these elements have, have a part to play in what it means to be a church community. We engage in the apostles' teaching through the engagement of the New Testament, but even uh, more than that, through the scriptures as a, as a whole. And so this leads us to our text of emphasis today, which was found in 2 Timothy. So 2 Timothy was a letter uh, written by one of the apostles, Paul, to one of his colleagues had, who had also been uh, commissioned to teach about Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy, uh, talking specifically about the idea of the purpose of the the scriptures or the written testimony of those who taught about uh, God and about Jesus. In this case, Paul is probably encouraging Timothy uh, about the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament, but the implications are the same for the teachings of the apostles that were so valued by that first century church. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is jumping into the middle of verse 15. It says this, this is Paul talking to Timothy, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. So he's talking to someone who is familiar with the Bible since he was a, a child. From infancy, you, Timothy, have known the Holy scripture, Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, it's pretty clear that Paul, in talking to Timothy about the, the scriptures, or the apostles' teaching, or the prophets' teaching, that he is articulating that it has two functions, the, the teaching. The first fun- function is, it, is that it will make you wise about salvation that comes through faith in Jesus. 
So this is the first part of the purpose of the apostles' teaching or the scriptures. Let's just say scriptures that will cover the prophets' teaching and the apostles' teaching. First element, first purpose is that it will make you wise about salvation that comes through faith in Jesus. And then he goes on to say the second element, the second purpose of the apostles' teaching of the scriptures is to equip the follower of Jesus for, quote, every good work. So these two elements in Paul's mind as he's instructing Timothy about this element of, of teaching and the apostles' teaching. So now, it's, 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 it's important to note that as you look at the full spectrum of the apostles' teaching, one of these elements stands above and beyond. Uh, of first importance is that a person must uh, know about the work of Jesus in order that they may confess in him. Right? So the teaching of Jesus and his apostles highlights the work of Jesus. You read through the New Testament, you read through the, the letters of the Apostle Paul, he is adamant about the work of Jesus and the importance uh, of that. Even Jesus himself, by the way, in John chapter 3, verse 15, he says that everyone who believes in me may have eternal life. This is, this is the purpose of what he's doing. So Jesus is even clear in his own teaching, like the first and foremost thing is that you know about God's work through Jesus and that you're able to express faith in him. The apostles also, when they taught, and this is Acts chapter 16, the apostles are out, uh, a number of them, and they are sharing, and their message is this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and everyone with you. So it's really clear in the New Testament, in the teaching of the apostles, that their focus was that everyone know who Jesus is, know what Jesus has done, and are able to express faith and belief in him. That's, that's goal number one. But there is this second element of the, the teaching, and that is that a person needs to be equipped uh, for every good work. So there's these two elements, these two purposes of the teaching of Scripture, of the Bible, of the apostles' teaching, and the, and the prophets. Now, I would suggest that, you know, this makes sense. Um, do we have anyone here who is running the marathon tomorrow? I know some people who are not running the marathon, some who are very adamant about that, yeah. Oh, we have a marathon runner. Awesome, let's give, let's give him a, 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 a two, we have two. Where, where, our brother, if I'm, I'm gonna embarrass you just for a minute, where are you coming from to run the marathon today? Uh, from Boston. <laughs> we're very loving here, we're very warm. So, I've, pardon, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, that's fine, yeah, yeah, okay. All right, bro brother, bro oh, we've got many, where are you coming from to, to run the marathon today? Japan. From Japan. Wow, fabulous. If you can just wave to everyone. We usually don't do this, but we're embarrassing you because you're awesome. Thank you. All right, Japan. And we have another... Where are you coming from? <laughs> yes, our dear Sandy, yes. Sandy, running the marathon tomorrow. We're very proud of you and excited for you. Sandy, let's give Sandy... Anyone else running the marathon tomorrow? Mike? No? Sharon? Not too late. Actually, it is. Okay, volunteer, yeah. All right, marathoners, we're excited for you. Did you know that there are 50,000 people coming into the city? To the, it's one of the largest marathons, and certainly in the, 
in the country. The Boston Marathon, also awesome, a little more exclusive. Yeah, much, much, much uh, smaller. So 50,000 people running the marathon. By the way, be careful where you're going to. One year, I got stuck on the east side of First Avenue. Have you ever done that before? We went to brunch, and we were on the east side of First Avenue, and you cannot get back from there. Um, it's like literally like four blocks away, and it took us like five hours to get home. Anyway, so we had to run with them. It's very embarrassing. Anyway, uh, so 50,000 people coming to Marathon. Now, I would suggest you like, that's why I'm not in the Marathon, yeah, is that I run like that. Um, there, that there are two parts, two basic parts of running the Marathon. Now, I've never run a Marathon, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there are two parts. There is the knowing that the Marathon exists and getting into the Marathon. That's part number one. And, and then there's the training that comes so that when you do run the Marathon, you are not miserable. Okay, there's those, those, two, those two bars. So just like there are two parts of like the purpose of the scriptures, like there's, there's knowing about the work of Jesus and embracing him, which gets you in. You are in, you are in Jesus if you embrace God's work through Jesus on your behalf. Simple as that, you're in. But when you're in, you don't want to be miserable. And so that's where the second part comes in, and that is you are equipped to, to live the life of faith. Now, you can just be in, and that's fine, but why not not be miserable, right? So if you get into the marathon, I would suggest that most of us who are able-bodied could probably do the marathon. It's 26.2 miles. Now, that's a lot of working. At the average human foot speed is 1.4 miles an hour. That means if you are able-bodied enough and... and uh, and, and able enough and have enough motivation, you could walk the marathon in about eight and a half hours. That's probably the only way I'm ever doing the marathon is walking. So that for those of us who are able-bodied, able, able -bodied, we could do the marathon, but you know what? If you try to do the marathon without preparing, you might get done in eight and a half an hours, but I would guess that you are going to be miserable because you're going to get hungry and your feet are going to hurt because you're not in the right shoes and you haven't been training. So if you're going to run the marathon, why not prepare for it and train for it and not be miserable? This is the idea of the two elements of the scriptures. You get in with Jesus. Recognize what he's done on our behalf. Embrace and, and, and express faith in him. You're in, but why not be in and not be miserable? And then that's where you are equipped to live the life of faith. Everybody with me? You got, is this okay? Is this making sense? Sometimes, you know, I come up with these illustrations in the shower I don't know if it's going to work, so I'm sorry. I got another one, though. I got another one. It was a long shower. Um, like, like the, two, the two elements of like the idea of like embracing Jesus, you know, if, um, you know, sometimes when we, when we talk about like embracing Jesus, the outcome in our minds is only reserved for some time in the future, long off. Like, I've embraced Jesus, and I will be saved. And so we think of saved at some point in the distant future, that something great is going to happen. And it's kind of like this. Like, if I told you, hey, I have a check for $50 million that I would love to give to you, and I am going to give it to you in 75 years. Exciting. Exciting, right? Isn't that exciting? 50, I mean, who wouldn't want to know that they have access to a check for $50 million? Well, think about what that would do for your life and what you could but then you don't have access to it for 75 years, most of you are not going to even be alive 
that long. And yet, some of us, that's how we think about embracing God's work in Jesus. Like, okay, we've done it, but the outcome isn't really going to take place until a long, sometime distant in the future. So, so Paul is here with this, this two parts of the, 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 the narrative story, the, 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 the scriptures, is that it has an impact for us, certainly uh, immediately in the salvation for, for Jesus, but the equipping also helps us to experience life-changing things, not just at some distant point in the future, but now. I mean, who wants to wait 75 years for your $50 million reward? You got, is this making, did the shower, I'm not sure that that worked. Nobody, okay. Anyway, let me keep going. We'll figure this out. Okay. Now, I would suggest to you that this, that these two elements of the scriptures are not, by the way, just for our individual benefit, but they also help the community. I mean, we're trying to be thoughtful about the Advent Hope community and how we can be a community of faith, and we're looking back to say this, the first century church, they thrived as a community, how does this apply for us? And, uh, and so the implication is like these two parts of the scripture, these two purposes of the scripture have implications not just for us as individuals, but for us as a, as a community. Historian Rodney Stark, I uh, this guy's an interesting guy. He is a historian, as far as I know, he's certainly not writing from a Christian uh, background, so he's not a homer per se, but he's done a lot of research on how this little group of a couple hundred people in the first century grow to be like this gigantic social and political movement, for better or worse, by the third century. How does that happen? How do they go from being almost nobody in like the backwater parts of, you know, some, some place in the world to like this world force in about three to four hundred years? And so Stark says that it's because of the nature of the commu community. I mean, certain things like this. Um, Christians, and you could say that they learned to do good works, when, when, a, when a, a sickness, a plague would take place, Christians had, had been uh, taught to take care of each other. And so it was the, it was the Christians who created uh, communities to take care of each other and, and make sure that the sick were cared for and the hungry were cared for and the, the people who were in need cared for and that they literally like, just physically survived some things that other people didn't because they didn't have part of the community. They weren't, in, they weren't in a community uh, like that. And so Rodney Stark, this historian, is affirming the idea that just some of the Christian, the traits that people live, the learning to do good works, help the church to grow as a community and to take care of each other and so on. This is just kind of an interesting uh, side note. So anyway, these two elements and purposes of the apostles' uh, teaching I think, help us to understand what is going on and why it was such an integral part of the first century uh, church. Now, here's the problem. Apostles' teaching, wonderful, essential to the first century church. But sadly, over the 2000, nearly 2,000 years since the, the apostles' teaching was such an integral part of the church, the church has found a way to use the apostles' teaching for things that are not so positive. We've kind of messed it up, if you will. So it's no secret that the, the teaching of the apostles was used to validate slavery in early U.S. Uh, history. The apostles' teaching has been used to perpetuate gender inequality. The apostles' teaching has been used to promote war 
So, so the apostles' teaching is undeniably good and positive, but, but people have found a way to use the apostles' teaching for bad things. So this leads to an obvious question, like, how? How did this happen? I mean, what, 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 what happened that the apostles did something that was designed to be good and to build up the church actually has been used in many circumstances to do horrible things to many people? Um, and so I think that there are a bunch of responses to the, this question, like, how, you know, how do you mess up the, 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 the teaching of the Bible? But I, so I have three, though, that I want to share with you uh, today for sake of time. Uh, so first, firstly, uh, we, we mess up the purpose of the Bible and we cause the Bible to do harmful things when we misunderstand the purpose of the scriptures. Uh, in John chapter 5, this is Jesus again, and he says this. Now he's talking to people in his day who were very in to the Bible of their day, which we would consider the, we would think of, of as the Old Testament. And Jesus is talking to these people, and he says this. He says, you study the scriptures diligently, which sounds very much like they were devoted to the scriptures, which is what we're told about the first century church, right? So you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Talking to a group of people who are very, very serious about the study of the scriptures, of the, the, the teaching of their, of their apostles, if you will. But he says this, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. So he's like, you, you're missing the entire point. Like, you are very, very, very good at studying the scriptures, the studying the Bible. But you are missing the whole point, and the whole point of the Bible is leading to me and acceptance of me. These are, these are Jesus' words. And so when we misunderstand the purpose of the scriptures, you're bound to screw everything else up. All right, so that's, that's way number one in which you can misapply the scriptures and do harmful things to people. You misunderstand the purpose of the scriptures, and the purpose of the scriptures are to highlight the work of Jesus and to call us to him. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have uh, life. By the way, this also explains why um, there, are, there are some students of the Bible who are, I mean, they know the Bible incredibly well. I would guess if you've been around a church scene long enough, you've met a person like this who is incredibly knowledgeable about the Bible. It is mean as a hornet. You know what I'm talking about? Like, just like a mean person. Study the, study, I'm, I'm not just saying meanness is just like one aspect, but, but, but it's, it's one. So like really knows the Bible well, but, but, but it's just, it, it hasn't penetrated the heart and, and really haven't embraced uh, Jesus. Because I, I think the Bible should lead to joy and peace. We're told that in Galatians chapter 5. And when it's instead leading to meanness and angriness and, and frustration, something is off there. And so maybe this is misunderstanding the purpose of the Bible, the, the central focus of the Bible, and that is bound to mess things up. Okay, so that's, that's number one. 
when we misunderstand the purpose of scriptures, we do harmful things with it, often to people. Uh, secondly, when we make the, the Bible, the scriptures, the apostle teaching, the Old Testament, whatever, whatever, primarily about our work that we're supposed to do, and less about God's work and what he's already done. Uh, there is a tendency to, even in, in the church, to focus on the ethics of the New Testament authors, uh, while neglecting the clear emphasis on the work of Jesus. So the ethics is like, you know, how we should behave, what we should do. Uh, we talk about Jesus as a great teacher, a great philosopher, a great, a great uh, man. All of those things are certainly uh, true, but those are secondary to what Jesus actually did. So Jesus as a teacher, a philosopher, moral leader, beautiful. But you know what? There's been like a million of those through history. There's been a lot of great philosophers and teachers and, and leaders and, and moral character, characters through the history of the world. Uh, what there haven't been a lot of are people who can actually go about saving the world, right? Who's through their actions, the whole game changes. And this is the assertion of the apostles, that not his teaching, but Jesus' action, life, death, resurrection, ascension, that because of those things, the game has been changed. So, so this, is, this is different. So, but when we, we focus only or primarily about Jesus as a moral leader, a, philosoph a philosopher, a, a, a teacher, and, and then what, because what happens is that leads us to the work that you have to do. If Jesus is just a moral a teacher and a philosopher and a guide, then you are responsible for doing what he says for you to do. And that's where it always falls off for humans. I mean, if we just needed more good advice about how to live, and then that's the problem, then everybody would be doing great, right? And the world would be a place of peace and love. Oh, if we just knew what we should be doing, everything was good, but we know what we should be, be doing for the most part. I mean, yes, there are people who don't know what they're doing, but for the most part, we know how the world should work. We, you know how your life should work, ideally. If you don't, you can go over to Barnes & Noble. It's just two blocks away. Today's message is sponsored, as always, by Barnes & Noble. You get a 30% discount if you go over there and ask for a book in the self-help section. That is not true, but I want to hear somebody try it. I'm from Advent Hope. I'm here for my 30% discount. There are so many books about how to get your life together at Barnes & Noble that it, it, we won't, you know, if it was just more knowledge, we'd be great because you could just go read a book, but it doesn't work. See, so we need someone who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And this is the message of the apostles. Jesus has done what we cannot do. So, when we relegate the scriptures and the apostles' teaching just to an ethical study of how we should behave, that leads to all kinds of problems and is probably going to lead us to misinterpret the Bible and to use it in ways that are harmful to ourselves and to other people. Jesus has come and done something we will never be able to do, and as we express faith in this, things can change. We can be transformed. The world can be transformed. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, the apostle Paul who met Jesus, he says this, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith 
this is not from yourselves. Don't be confused. It's not because you have figured out how to be an ethical person. This is a gift from God. This is not by your ethical and moral works so that no one can boast. We, he's now talking to, the, to those who have accepted God's word through Jesus, we are God's handiwork crafted in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this is an essential element and something that Christians for years have been messing up, thinking that the Bible is primarily about, uh, about ethics. By the way, I would suggest to you this is a, a, an issue for Christians on all sides. So you talk about like there are conservative Christians and then there are liberal Christians and then there are you know, these different kind of camps that we put Christians in, but all of them are in danger of missing this point because oftentimes they're talking about which ethics are most important when the apostles' teaching really is about what Jesus has done on our behalf and how we embrace that and how he changes us. God's work, not ours. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, Good things, being ethical, being moral is a beautiful thing. It should happen. It will happen as we embrace God's work through Jesus. All right, uh, find what, another illustration. This is right out of the shower. I'm sorry for giving you that illustration um, that, or that, that image. But uh, how about this? Like missing, missing, missing the point. Um, have you ever been to like a really delicious restaurant with someone you went with someone you love care isn't that fun or by yourself i don't know just let's imagine a, a, a restaurant that you go to and you order a a, a delicious meal and the the, the 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 person who is serving the meal comes out and is steaming and is delicious and it is set down before you and it smells good and you get so caught up in the fork that you are going to use to eat the meal that you miss the whole enjoyment of the flavor and the experience of actually eating it. This is another example of missing the point and how we often treat the scriptures. Get focused on the fork and miss the delicious meal that is provided in Jesus. I'm going to stop with the goofy illustrations now. Okay. Last one, well, that's it. Like, how do we mess things up when we focus more on what the teaching says to others than about what it says to us? All right, classic, this is Jesus' own illustration, so blame him if this is goofy. This is Matthew chapter 7. It's at the end of Jesus' most famous sermon. He says this, don't judge or you too will be judged. You remember this one? Don't judge, isn't that a great one? Don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the gigantic plank that is sticking out of your eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a giant plank in your own eye? You're a hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then maybe, maybe you will see clearly enough to remove the speck and help your brother. Isn't that a great illustration? 
sometimes when we read the apostles' teaching, the, the first thought is, <laughs> boy, that person really needs to hear this. If only they heard this, then they could get their life together and be transformed and changed. And Jesus is like, clearly this is a problem that goes all the way back to Jesus' time. Jesus is like, you are a hypocrite. you got a giant plank sticking out of your, own, your eye, and you're worried about somebody else. And so we mess up the, the Scripture when we focus more on what the teaching has to say about other people and less what it has to say about us. Now, I could go on. Ways in which people have messed up using the apostles' teaching, this thing that was such an essential part of the first century uh, church, but, but I won't. I won't. Because the real question is, well, we, look, we want to live as a community that uses the, the, the Bible, that uses the scriptures, that uses the apostles' teaching to, to build up each other, to build up ourselves, to build up the community. So, so how, do we, how do we do that? How do we avoid these, these traps, these misuses of the Bible? That's, that's, a, that's a tough question. We want to avoid these things. We see how important the apostles' teaching is in the first century church. We want to, we want to use it like that. How, how are we going to do that? Well, it starts with uh, Jesus. Like Jesus, first of all, Jesus' own use of the, of the Bible. Jesus had a right understanding of the scriptures. Like, again, John chapter 5, we read this earlier. You study the scriptures diligently. You are devoted to the scriptures uh, because you think in them you have eternal life, Jesus says. These are the very scriptures, and they testify about me. See, Jesus understood, as bold a proclamation as this is, and by the way, if you're in the camp of Jesus is a great philosopher, you better throw that out if you're going to read this, because what great philosopher has the boldness to say this? These are the very scriptures, and they testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. I mean, this is one of Jesus' most clear statements that he believes that he is the God of salvation and that through him is the way. He's very clear. Jesus had a right understanding of the scriptures. And Jesus used the scriptures appropriately. We're told that when Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 3, immediately after, in a very mysterious setting, he is jettisoned off almost. It's like a very, you read the description, it's so weird that he is suddenly out in the, the desert. He's out in a place where there's nothing, and he's out there for a very uh, long time, and as he's getting toward the end of his time there, he is, thank you, yes, um, that's my sign, by the way, that I should stop. Thank you, Spencer. Um, I'm going to give me I'm gonna, just a couple more minutes. Land in the plane, everyone. The plane is landing. So he's out in the desert, and so the accuser uh, comes his kind of enemy, his mortal enemy, and, and is tempting him that, with things that would appear to be good, and Jesus' response is always back to the scriptures. It is written, it is written, it is written, it is written and time and time again. And so again, we see that Jesus used the scriptures appropriately to make sure that he, he constrained even himself to do that which is right. So Jesus understood the purpose of the scriptures, that they led to him, and Jesus knew how to use the scriptures appropriately. But once again, if Jesus is just a model, and I were to tell you, okay, go use the scriptures like Jesus did, you would be very depressed in about half an hour when you realize that you are not going to be very good at doing that. Okay, So there is good news. Not only was Jesus good at using the scriptures, that because Jesus lived, died, rose again, 
we, you and me, have new access to the scriptures in a way in which we would never have before unless we are able to embrace God's work through Jesus. Jesus says this, all right? This is John chapter 16. This is Jesus thinking about what's to come. He says, the spirit, which we know is empowered through the work of Jesus, his sacrificial death and resurrection, the spirit will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says. It is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So Jesus is saying, like, because of his, his work, the Spirit is enabled to do work in you and me and everybody who is open to it, and that that can lead us into all kinds of truth. See, so because of God's work, we have access to something we would not have before the Spirit, spirit power. Now, the good news is, as bad, bad as we as a church and sometimes we as individuals have messed things up when it comes to the Bible, because of the work of Jesus, we have access to power that can teach us how to really use the Bible for all it's worth, to grow as human beings, to, to, to be kind to people, to, to experience love for, for, for a broken world that we will never experience by just kind of drumming it up on our own, but that only comes through God. And this comes as we embrace, again, Jesus' work for us. Romans chapter 10, this is Paul again, last time. He says this, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And by the way, his understanding of being saved was comprehensive, not just something that happens in the future, $50 million, 70 years from now. His, his idea of being saved means that you start to experience transformation here and, and now. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the name on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. See, the, Paul is affirming, by the way, the apostles' teaching right there. He's saying, somebody has to go and communicate this message, and it was the apostles. And so through the teaching of the apostles, the church, you and I, 2,000 years later, have access to understand what Jesus did. And as we declare with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we have access to salvation that is transform transformative now and in the world to come. And so, as we continue on this journey over the next uh, four weeks, wrestling with what it means to be a church community that is vibrant and in, alive and, and embracing these four elements starting with this element of the apostles' teaching. May the Spirit of Jesus instruct us through the teaching of the apostles and bring us to oneness with ourselves, with each other, and with him. Now, I'm going to invite you to, to, to say a confession uh, with me. So I'm going to read through it, and then no pressure. If you don't want to do it yourself, that's fine. But for those who would like to, 
would like to say. I'm going to read through it first. Here's, here's the confess, confession. I confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that the Father raised him from the dead. So these are the very words of Romans chapter 9. So for those who are willing, just repeat after me. I confess that Jesus is Lord. And believe that the Father raised him from the dead. Amen. May all truth as we become devoted to the Apostles' teaching. Amen. Thank you.